You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit with Dr. Michael Rogers, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We come once again to the book of Genesis. We've been studying it quite some time now. Looking today once more at the account of things God did wonderfully in the life of the man we call Noah. Just a prefatory comment to reading of this and considering it today, I find that whether you bring a a believing or a skeptical mindset to matters like the great flood and the ark and all the questions that surround it, of course, depends a lot on your view of the Word of God and your fundamental faith in God as a self-revealing God to tell us what is true. There are people who come to a text like this, and they're full of challenges, and they're ready to tell you with all kinds of arguments why these things could not possibly have happened. And There are many such discussions that range around the, the events of the ark and the flood. But there's a matter of rather fundamental viewpoint. Did God speak truth in His Word? And when we believe that, when we trust in that, we find that Word bearing itself out and working itself out in so many ways. I pray that you come with a trusting viewpoint, not a skeptical viewpoint. It's right to ask questions, but we ask them from a standpoint of faith, not of doubt this morning. I'm going to do what is a little unusual here in trying to span quite a a few events in this. I'm going to read beginning in chapter 7 at verse 5 through verse 5 of chapter 8. Listen to God's holy word. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons, his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark, to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day the springs of the great deep burst forth, and floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of the three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them, came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth as the waters increased. They lifted the ark high above the earth, and the waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated 
on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah, and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and floodgates of the heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky, the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. This solemn disaster is God's truth from His holy word. You know, it's no easy thing to stand completely alone in your society for a principle or a truth or a spiritual goal that is unseen by other people around you in such a way that your entire behavior appears ridiculous in their eyes because you are obeying a God for whom they pay no heed and have no understanding. Martin Luther had a position like that in the early days of the Reformation as he told the establishment of the Roman church of that time that they had lost completely the biblical concept of salvation by God's grace alone through faith in Christ and he looked like a ridiculous figure. The Apostle Paul certainly stood alone. Church history figures like Athanasius and John Knox knew this kind of position as well and paid a price for it. People of God were ridiculed and threatened and persecuted and even killed for believing God and obeying His Word implicitly in the midst of many, many others who had no idea what they were following or what they believed. But I wonder if there was ever a representative of God-centered faith who ever stood in a more solitary position for a longer period of time than God's servant named Noah. Last time we began to consider his story that covers Genesis 6 through 9, And we saw that after a high water mark, and that's not a pun, but a time when faith was active among people, as told in chapter 5, in great ways. And there were many heroic people of faith, and they had descendants who walked with the Lord. Somehow, 
things turned for mankind. And Genesis 6 told us how in a matter of generations things reached spiritual lows so that we could have that summary in Genesis 6, 5 that as the Lord looked out on humanity, He saw that every thought, every plan, the whole mindset by which people lived their lives was described as only evil all the time. And God, rather than being capricious or sudden in His decisions about these things, had waited actually more than 16 centuries to delay judgment that was increasingly being deserved. But that judgment came to a breaking point. And it was announced, warning was given. In fact, I noted even the the curious prophetic announcement of the name of Methuselah, the longest living man of history, 969 years he lived. And when he was born, someone knew to give him that unusual name, which means When he is gone, it will come. The very name of Methuselah was a prophecy. And then we saw how God's grace sovereignly came on Methuselah's grandson, Noah, who responded to the grace of God, lived a life of faith as the Lord stirred him to do it, walked with God in a singular way, and we can put the chronology together and realize that in the year that Methuselah died, Noah was putting the last nails and planks into a massive barge that God had designed for him to build so that he and his family of faith alone would escape a catastrophe coming to the earth. Now we move forward with it. There's a lot here. There are many side roads we could go down, and I'm going to just avoid most of them to see the central thrust of the text Preparing the ark and the flood event itself is our concern today. Now, you might realize that there are probably few chapters in all the Bible that are more attacked and treated sarcastically by skeptics who would point to Scripture and say, how can you ever put your trust or belief in something that is as full of pious mythology as this tale of Noah and the ark, and they will tell you a dozen reasons why they think it's an absolutely foolish tale that could not possibly be true. And yet we have the assertion of this tale told in historic terms with the names of real people, with the exact years that things happened in. There isn't any question that Scripture frames this as history, hard, detailed history. And yet we find in it that human hearts were universally in rebellion against God, just as many are today, including the hearts of so-called biblical experts who want to tear things down and tell you why it could not be so. Human belief was at an amazing low point in Genesis 6. And we think how that's been true many crucial times in history. Think of when Jesus was born in the first century, and he came to the people of Israel there at Jerusalem, their capital, and his birth was made known gradually as he moved out of the obscurity of a young adulthood and declared his ministry and fulfilled so many signs in his miracles and his teaching that 
looked every bit like God's Messiah. And Israel, the people who were supposed to be looking for a Messiah, were so full of unbelief that other than a very small number of people, they had no regard for him at all and could not believe that he was the one who God would send. When we see the low ebb of true faith that looks to the Lord in many different times of history, we would think of words that Jesus himself said in Luke 18. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We like to think perhaps the predominant view is that of faith, but it is, in fact, the minority view in every generation. Now, I ask you, first of all, today to think on the task of building this ark of Noah. I'm telling you for a first point that Noah's shipbuilding was an act of justifying faith. Nothing summarizes this any better than the compact sentence where I began reading Genesis 7-5. The simple words, Noah did all that the Lord commanded. Now, we don't know how Noah, or for that matter, any other biblical figure, received and was confident that they were receiving divine revelation. How did God speak? We think it was mostly an individualistic way that the Lord whispered in the conscience, but yet could assert some truth that it came upon the individual in in such a sure way that they felt, this is not from me, I didn't think of this, this must be God as good as dictating to me things like exact measurements and materials and animals to fill a great ship. And I imagine Noah must have made some kind of drawings for his workmen, and of course it was his hand that made the drawings, and yet he would have said that he was so sure the Lord was revealing this, coming up with this plan that would be bizarre and and amazing unless it was from God that as he drew the drawings, they were the revelation of God. And here's an interesting thing I've noted that I never noticed before about these several chapters as I was studying them. Noah does not speak. There's no, not that he couldn't speak or didn't in real life, but there's no recorded speech from Noah in all of this narrative until late in chapter 9 when the flood event is over. And you have a sense that here is God's servant silently listening and saying, speak, Lord, and your servant will obey. Noah didn't do the talking. He didn't argue with God. He didn't dialogue. Did I hear you right? Do you really want that? Nothing like that. Noah was a silent, obedient man of faith here. Now, this ark, of course, was a ship of enormous dimensions. By the way, last week I told you it was a boat. I'm changing my mind. Because a Navy pilot told me it had to be a ship. Don't argue with the Navy, okay? We're talking about a ship. How well do you visualize a craft 75 feet wide by 450 feet long, three stories tall? Maybe your mind has trouble doing that, but I can actually make it fairly easy for you. I got out the blueprints of this building you're sitting in to check myself. From the wall that's just behind me to the wall at the doors opposite me is almost exactly 75 feet. So you've got the width, all right? 
You say, what about the length? How does that compare with the long dimension of this room I am in? The long dimension from those exit doors to those exit doors is 112 feet. Are you starting to put it together in your mind? You need four of these rooms end-to-end to equal the dimensions of the ark that Noah was commissioned to build. That is quite a structure. I once built a a shed in my backyard many years ago, 30 years ago, before they had kits for sheds. I wasn't a carpenter. I just decided this is going to be in the backyard, pretty well screened by a couple of trees. Nobody's really going to see it, and it's just going to house some garden things anyway. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Well, it was pathetic. You know, people came over to my barbecues and said, boy, where'd you get that shed? Or things like, I hope that was here when you came. I never told him who built it. I would not have wanted to have the commission to build a structure in the middle of dry land four times the size of this room. So large that you would say, it's utterly impossible. Nobody could build anything like that. The great 20th century ocean liners like the Queen Elizabeth II or the vast oil tankers that you see today are are ships, of course, that are more than a thousand feet in length, three or more times the length of the ark. But remember, of course, they're steel. And this is a wood structure. As far as we know, nothing of that size, certainly not a sailing craft of that size. There may have been buildings, and probably were buildings, larger than that. The pyramids of Egypt and and other ancient structures amaze engineers as to how they were put together. But this is a wooden structure that is enormous. But one thing to bear in mind is the fact that this wasn't a finely engineered ship. It didn't need to navigate. It didn't have a sail. It, It was not powered in any way, of course. It had to do one thing and one thing only. Float. And so it had to be of a proper kind of dimension and, of course, watertight so it would float. Well, the interesting thing is that engineers have made scale models of a craft the same size as the ark, and they have tested it in various ways. They do these things, and they've said, you know, the dimensions were really for a very sturdy kind of boat. Oh, there I go, ship that would indeed float and would be very difficult to be capsized, the engineers say. Well, we ask all kinds of questions. How many people helped build it? How long did it take? What did it cost? How was it accomplished? We don't know any of that. We don't know how long it took. Probably Noah was a fairly prominent individual. He may have owned some land and some forests to get the lumber, but he didn't go out there and chop down every tree all alone, I can guarantee you, for a project this size. He was probably substantial enough to be able to hire people, skilled people, to work for him and do this. And and yet, no matter what kind of a crew he had, it certainly took years to complete. And only then, even if the township officials left him alone, you know, with the building codes (laughs) and the inspectors and everybody else that shows up, which we know only too well about. But it certainly took years, maybe decades, to do this. But it was possible. But we would not diminish for a minute that it was a remarkable act of faith to build this enormous structure, not at the side of a lake, apparently not near any notable body of water, out in the 
middle of somewhere, what did people think? You know, Bill Cosby and others have had a riot with Noah and neighbors making fun and making jokes about him. Well, he was acting in faith. That's what he knew. He was obeying the Lord explicitly, and he didn't think that was an optional thing to do. The Lord had revealed things to him in such a certain way. Think of his trust in this revelation. Did he ever have second thoughts? Did he ever, you know, at the end of a long workday, supervising the carpenters and the, the derricks and the booms that raised the beams and everything, say, am I crazy? Why am I doing this? Somehow he persevered in this work of total faith, executing every detail of what God had revealed him to do until it was complete. Calvin, in his commentary, made a comment on Noah's righteous faith, and he said this. Calvin wrote, The prodigious side of the size of the ark must have nearly overwhelmed Noah. He might easily have just procrastinated before beginning it and, and thought, well, someday I'll do that, but not right now. But we cannot think Noah was so stupid as not to have reckoned fully with the many practical obstacles in his path. Calvin, in other words, is seeing Noah as a very human guy who nevertheless undertook what seemed impossible. Now, faith in God as Savior brings people to different tests at different points in history and in their lives. But we also need a faith that obeys, that obeys God's Word in the details, not just in the generalities and in the big principles, but a faith that says, here, God has revealed Himself in His Word and and in the commandments and in principles and in examples. I know what He wants to be done, and I must do it. God gives every believer in Jesus Christ a lifetime to be able to respond and not simply say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. God says, show me. Obey me. Rest in my word. Do what I say. And by this, you will demonstrate a righteous life. You will demonstrate that faith which justifies you in my sight. True, I gave you the grace. I awakened you. I called you. But your faith needs to respond in spite of difficulties, going against the grain of what other people think, standing up and saying, my God has spoken, I will obey. And think of this. How many fewer obstacles does our faith have to overcome? We, who have the enormous advantage over Noah, of living in a time of history when we can look back and say, look what God has done. He has brought Christ. He has fulfilled His promises. He has given us His written word. Noah didn't have one of these folks. He just had the sure promise that God has spoken to me. He didn't know Christ. He didn't know the cross. But look how he trusted God. How much better reason we have to have a faith that rests in God's Word and obeys Him. Now, secondly, <coughs> here's a point. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> in the second place, I, would, I want to go quickly past something that could easily occupy a large discussion for us, and it's an object of fascination to many people, but we do need to make a statement about it, and that is about the evidence in favor of a global flood catastrophe. 
There are all kinds of books about the flood of Noah's day, some written by very reputable and fine scientists. There are books about the meteorology and the oceanography and the geology of what happened then. You can go down all kinds of avenues to talk about that, but the crucial question you have to reduce it to is to ask yourself, was this indeed a global flood or was it somehow a mere localized catastrophe? There are those who write that. They say, oh, well, there's a bowl of mountains that contained this water and, and it was that region, but it wasn't every Well, folks, I'm going to tell you my position and it won't surprise you. I am compelled to stand with those who say the plain sense of Scripture tells us this was a global event. It was a planetary flood. And you can raise every kind of skepticism as to where that much water would come from and where it would disappear to afterwards. Notice that twice the text mentions, verse 11 of chapter 7 and another place, that springs of the great deep were opened up. Not all the water fell out of the sky. Somehow, the earth itself underwent some cataclysm of God's design and supernatural working that waters were released. One interesting line of speculation is that oceans as we know them today were much, much smaller before the flood. And, you know, we look at the planet today and we can see it from space and know what it looks like. And what is it, two-thirds or three-quarters of the surface of the planet is covered by water? The speculation would be that it wasn't that way once. And that what we see today in the vast oceans are largely remains of the forces of this flood, having receded. If this is just what remains, you know, like a dry day after a major flood, imagine the flood itself. Well, all the alleged problems over the how of this phenomenon don't remove the fact that God worked. It was God's supernatural hand. And there are basic fundamental arguments favoring this being a global event that you simply can't easily dislodge. Let me just quickly mention them without elaborating, uh, and this is only some of them. One, the basic motive for the flood was the Lord's intention to judge all of humanity except for Noah and his family. Only a worldwide flood would do that because people were presumably dispersed by this time over a very large area of the earth, having already had at least 16 centuries to migrate. Secondly, hard as it is to conceptualize, the text describes mountains being underwater. Water that high cannot remain. How do you cover mountains but keep it in one region? You can't do that. Thirdly, the very construction of a huge ark would be a ridiculous act for Noah to undertake if all he really needed to do was to migrate a few hundred miles to get to higher ground somewhere where the flood would not come. Fourthly, after the flood ends, the Lord promises in the covenant that we'll talk about, I hope, next week, sealed by a rainbow, that he would never devastate the earth in this fashion again. Well, he never has in a global flood again, has he? But yet we've had tsunamis, we've had great floods that inundate whole countries like Bangladesh. So if it's only a regional flood God is saying won't happen again, he's broken his promise any number of times. Five, in the later chapters, Genesis traces that all the stock of people on the earth descended from Noah and his three sons. And sixthly, 
New Testament references to the flood by Jesus and others who write about it seem always to assume that it was a global crisis. And I stand with that assumption. Someone who thinks otherwise has to demonstrate that what they're thinking is correct. Thirdly, today I want to move on to talk about special actions of God's providence working towards Noah, whom he had designed to save. God, and there are many of them, I'm only going to mention three, but there are many special actions of the providence of God working in this catastrophic time towards Noah. One is stated in Genesis 7-9. It's a marvelous thing. I don't know if you ever saw it before. It says, actually, two times as it describes the animals coming to the ark. Nowhere does it say Noah got the boys together and said, get your lariats and get a lot of cages. We've got to go out and round up all these animals. I don't know how we'll ever find them, but we have to go do that. No. Didn't happen. The text amazingly tells us that God called the animals and they came. The animals came of their own instinctive responses. And you notice in the description that they came by their kinds. You almost get, when you read it out loud as I did, you, your tongue has to keep saying, and their kinds, and their kinds, and their kinds. Now, the critics have a field day with this, of course. They say, I don't care how big that ark was, you would never get into it animals that could be the progenitors of all the many species, the thousands and millions of species of animals and insects and everything else that are on the earth today. Well, here's an interesting thing to just think about. I can't give you the authoritative answer, but what does the Bible mean when it says, according to their kinds? If you studied biology, you learned about what we call taxonomy, the organization of living things into different categories. And does the word kind, what what level of taxonomy or category is the word kind speaking about, those of you who know biology? Is it speaking about species? Or is it a step higher about families or phylums or what? Well, if it's at the species level, then indeed there probably had to be, as some would say, hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of animals. But if it's just one notch higher, if kind could indicate a family of animals, as the biologist defines it, and that family was sufficient as breeding stock with its genotype to later, over the centuries, see many, many variations and mutations so that, you know, for example, one pair of sparrows over the next thousand years would see sparrows become, you know, variegated in all kinds of colors and types and species, then it's really a rather realistic thing to see that these animals could have been contained in a vessel this size. One writer puts a point on it with this when he says, if we could have witnessed exactly how the Lord himself adjusted this matter, we would probably marvel at the stupidity of our own doubting questions. But Genesis is unapologetic about telling us the Lord himself asserted some kind of innate homing call for these animals to come. Just like the geese know when it's time, you know, to hit Fort Lauderdale. These animals were brought by the Lord. Amazing. Another special providence of God is in the words in 716. 
I love the phrase. There's just something wonderful about it. The little phrase that says, Then the Lord shut him in. Once again, you get the strong sense that this isn't just a human project, a man building a big vessel and, okay, sons, come on, we've got to get this heavy door shut, get some more pitch, seal up the cracks around. The Lord shut him in. I don't know exactly what that means, but it suggests to us God's touch of fatherly safekeeping just as the devastating judgment was about to come. God was ensuring that these people of faith were safe. Let me tell you that whatever God closes up and seals and shuts in is as secure as anything can possibly be. When you think of it, Revelation 3.7 comes to mind. What God opens, no one can shut. And what He shuts, no man can open. God sealed His man in. Thirdly, as an act of special providence is the great phrase in Genesis 8.1 here. So important that it's a real hinge to the text because seven, really six and seven are both chapters about the sin of man, the judgment that comes. Everything is now wiped out. The flood has taken the breath out of every living being at the end of chapter seven. And then comes 8.1 that says, again, just a simple few words, but God remembered Noah. Those are wonderful words. Here's an ark floating on an empty sea for more than 150 days. Five months. And Noah probably was able to peer out some daylight openings at the top of the ark where the roof came close to the side walls. Surely there were some kind of air ducts there or openings. And he looked out and he could see nothing but water month after month after month. And he believed what God had done. He was a man of faith. And yet are we speculating too much to think of Noah wondering as he looked out, are we going to perish in this floating zoo? Where will we ever see land again? How will we escape from this floating coffin? But there are these wonderful words, God remembered Noah. It doesn't mean God ever forgot him. We're not opposing it to forgetfulness here. When the Scripture says the Lord remembers someone, it's usually talking about God acting on the base of His covenant promises, things that He said He would do. And it's saying the Lord is faithful when He promises something. He said He would save this man, and the Lord didn't forget that promise. He was stirred up now to obey it, And the first thing we're told that he did was to send a wind so the waters would begin to recede. God follows through on what he promises. I was thinking of Psalm 147, verse 11, that says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He remembers such people. Now let me close with a couple of applications to you and me. Because while these are one-time, unique events of history, they're certainly given to us for spiritual lessons and principles that would help us to walk with the Lord. First this, Noah's obedient faith in building the ark for so many years shows us that trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior and then living a Christian life requires from us 
visible, lifelong, practical obedience and trust in the things that God's Word has asked us to do. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. And once again, I say how much greater basis and reason and motivation do we have to walk in obedience and trust with God and even be concerned about the details of His Word when we have it all in writing, when we have in history the demonstration of Jesus Christ and His cross and His resurrection. We have so much more to go on than Noah had. We have a superior revelation, both in detail and volume. And so, from us is required an obedient faith. When we rest in God, we are saying, I know whom I have believed. I know He is able to keep what I've committed to Him against that final day, even if it be a day of great catastrophe. Our faith in Christ and in God's promises of salvation is not a leap in the dark. It's not a denial of rational thought. It does mean sometimes that we seem to be out on a limb trusting God rather than resting in the false security of everyone else around us, of of materialism or politics or what have you. But in light of the evidence of revelation, that faith is well-grounded. And God expects us to trust Him and obey Him. Then I ask maybe the more emotional application that is here. And I ask it seriously. Are you in a position in your life to somehow feel abandoned? To say, well, sure, God, God has done things in the past, and I know He's promised, but boy, what I'm looking at right now, I'm looking around and all I see is water in every direction. And I don't know what God is doing. I don't know why he's put me in this dilemma. I don't know why he's let me go so long without a job. I, I feel absolutely alone. I can see no point of contact with a solution. I just want to remind you and point you to the great God who always remembers to fulfill all his promises of grace to everyone who claims them by faith in Christ the Son. Our text reinforces the fact that God will remember you. He might be working in some very mysterious ways in your life, ways that you say, I don't see how this could be from the Lord. I don't understand what's going on. But he's the God who doesn't forsake pledges that he makes to his friends. He's the God who holds the reins of every storm tight in his hands. And lastly, do you realize this from our text? That Noah's ark, this great vessel of safety that he had, is one of the Bible's greatest Old Testament symbols of Jesus Christ himself. Yes, the Scripture actually looks at the ark and says, that's just like what Christ does. The one place of eternal security is for you to be sealed by God into Jesus Christ who died for you and rose for you. Jesus is the door of salvation by which you enter a sanctuary, a place where you will ride out the great final storm of history. There's only one name, the Scripture says, given under heaven whereby you can be saved. 
Christ is the heaven-designed ark of God's refuge. And when you are locked tight within the arms and the work and the capabilities of this wonderful Savior, you too can rejoice with people of God from all of history in words like those of Psalm 32 in saying this, Surely, in the floods of many great waters, they will not come near me. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that as we see this wonderful, devastating work that you did, it's shocking to think of all the people who were snuffed out in their unbelief. And yet you were in the work of saving. You were in the work of fulfilling promises. You were in the work of being busy rescuing those who believe. May we, our Father, see you as a God who has not left us alone on an empty ocean. Give us a trust that clings like Noah. For we know that you will remember us and save us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I'd ask as we close today, let's sing.